0: Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Mike Mukucci, former CEO and Executive Vice President of the Commerce and Community Clouds at Salesforce. Today, we will be covering three main areas. One, the factors driving Mike's decision to sell his SaaS startup to Salesforce and then staying for 11 years. Secondly, how did community, collaboration, and commerce become part of the same cloud at Salesforce? And number three, Metrics That Matter to the CEO of a large company, specifically of a billion-dollar-plus business unit that he used to manage and report performance. Mike, please take a moment to give a brief background and overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Ray, for inviting me. What an honor, and it's great to spend some time chatting about all this. I think Ray, you and I—we first met. It's been more years than I want to count. Back in our days at Actra and Netscape, and it's been quite a run. I sold my company GroupSwim to Salesforce in 2009, and over the last 11 years, have built a variety of products at Salesforce. In the last three years, was managing our Commerce Cloud and Community Cloud business, which I'm sure you've all used it. If you ever went shopping at places like Adidas or New Balance or any of those, you've used Commerce Cloud, and if you've got online online help from anywhere from Sonos to Google Nest, you've used Community Cloud. These products touch a lot of people and it's been super fun, very rewarding. I've been super lucky.
0: It's amazing when you become a $20 billion plus company, right? Being famous for your sales cloud and then the marketing cloud and service cloud. I'm not even sure a lot of people know how big your commerce cloud was. So that's great to hear, but let's go back to the beginning of your story. So, as you said, we met at Netscape, where you were running kind of platform product management for our e-commerce group. And then you became a VP of product management at great companies like Commerce One and a VP of marketing, really an amazing career kind of success. And then in 2005, you started your own startup. What was behind the decision to be going to the entrepreneurial journey?
1: You know, I look back on 2005 and I think we were coming out still in the dot-com like hangover. And I was super lucky. Netscape and then Commerce One, it was like you were in a complete vortex of craziness. Like everybody wanted your products. You were like the bell at the ball, right? Super shiny object and just got a massive exposure globally to what software can do and how to transform businesses. And then the dot-com thing hit, and I went to a few startups, and I also got to see the struggle that smaller companies had, and what good looks like, and what good does not look like. And in 2005, I'm like, look, I always wanted to do my own company. There was a couple guys that I knew from Netscape and Commerce One that wanted to do it. So we're like, hey, we know what we're doing. We've seen good, we've seen bad, and let's do this. So I wouldn't say it was any more sophisticated than that. I always had a desire. And I felt like over the last whatever years, I really got a view of all angles of businesses and it worked out really well. If you haven't done, anybody hasn't done their own company, it's the best and worst job all combined in one. It's awesome.
0: Well, you kind of jumped into the deep end and that is a metaphor for the company that you created called GroupSwim. And I believe it was a collaboration platform. Kind of, what was your vision of what the collaboration platform in 2005 could
1: become? Well, it was before you know Facebook and the others really evolved. And what the initial thesis of the company was: how could we mine conversations to extract the best information, answers, and recommendations, and things like that? And so we were really looking at how we connected groups of people that had shared common interest and share those best thoughts. And that was the initial vision. My co-founder, Yari, he's Swedish. He came from, so our engineering team was in Stockholm and he has PhD from the Royal Institute of Stockholm and specializing machine learning and AI. So this was a very early like uh, attempt at that and how to connect communities and use AI to extract knowledge.
0: Well, you were definitely a visionary back in 2005 using machine learning and AI, but then were hit by an economic crisis in late 08, early 09. And that kind of coincided with you selling Group Swim to Salesforce. What really drove that? Was it economic or was it opportunity?
1: Well, we bootstrapped the company. And I think you've had him on your podcast as well, Tom Riley, a good friend. And Tom was also an investor and a board member of Group Swim. And one of our philosophies going in is we really tried to run a fairly lean company until we felt like we had nailed product market fit. By 2009, we felt like product market fit had started to really hit. We were at cash flow break-even and it was a decision. And I think everybody, all companies go through this, Ray. I'm sure you've talked to tons where, okay, now do you raise a giant round or do you exit the business? And we got two offers for the company because we kind of put out feelers and we had two offers and it just felt right. It felt right for the investors. It felt right for the company. And it also felt right to carry that vision forward.
0: Got it. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned some previous guests we've had on the Metrics of Major podcast. Another one was the founder of DocuSign. His name's Court Lorenzini. And similar to you, he spent almost five years as the founding CEO to really get great product market fit. But then he decided not to stick around to that next stage of scaling and go and found another company. But you You decided not only to stick around, to make a long career at Salesforce, going in initially, I believe, as the product leader that built Community Cloud and becoming the CEO of Commerce and Community Cloud at Salesforce. 11 years. What motivated you to stay or go, number one, and then stay for 11 years?
1: (laughs) It's amazing. It was 11 years, Ray. (laughs) Uh, Blink of an eye. When we got acquired in 2009, Salesforce was starting a project at the time. It was called CSN, Corporate Social Network. The idea was to lay a social network on top of CRM. And we were acquired to help build that. And we launched it in 2010. It was called Chatter. And it was a modified version of the vision that we had at GroupSwim, which is one of the reasons why it fits so well is I was very aligned with both the technology vision at Salesforce, but also our values. My values were big on customer first, you know, your team and trust in your team and innovation and growth. These and just fit like our two companies, like we were very small, Salesforce, about 3000 people at the time, but those things fit well. And so we got a chance to flex and we launched chatter in 2010 and it did well. And it was kind of a, an extension of the group's own vision. And then from there, this is, in fact, being both an entrepreneur and having time at Netscape Commerce, one of those startups, I went back and pitched to Mark and Parker and the other executives this concept of community cloud. We came out like 75 different names of it. And the essential message was Salesforce is organized around CRM orgs, right? So each company gets an org. How can you connect these organizations together? Think about supply chain, which, Ray, I know you know very well. Like, how can you share data back and forth between companies securely and let them collaborate? And that was really the ultimate vision of Groups One was connect these pods together. And so we created Community Cloud, which was an extension of Chatter, an extension of each org so that you could open it up and connect companies together. And we launched it in 2013.
0: Now I think that might be news to our listeners because when you were a Salesforce user, you knew chatter as a way to communicate with other people within your organization, almost like you know, Slack before it became Slack. But I didn't know that part of the vision was to communicate between companies, between organizations.
1: Yes. And the trick was, you know, everybody knows how to use social now, but how do you do it securely so that maybe you are having a conversation with your supply chain, your supplier? And you're sharing data that's sensitive. It has to have a sharing around it. It lets you act on the data and lets you create a user experience that's compelling. So all those were factors in building community cloud. It had to have a great UI. It had to be able to expose data with sharing. Then it had to have a collaboration layer on it. And when we launched it, it took off. It had some bumps in the road like any product. But when we left, let's see, it wrapped up this year, it was about 650 million users on it to give you a perspective of scale.
0: Wow. Community Cloud has 650 million. And was driving revenue directly to Community Cloud a measurement, or was it more to enable the other clouds to generate revenue?
1: The way Salesforce works is obviously we track all the cloud revenue. So you have a scorecard, every cloud has a scorecard, and you track what we call ACV and AOV but we re-attribute the revenue to the different clouds. So it's a product that we don't report out to the street. And that's not uncommon. There's quite a few products in Salesforce like that, and just for simplicity. But we tracked revenue and usage and growth just obsessively on the product.
0: Well, I had a question for you, and I think I may have answered it with one of the things you said earlier, but I'm going to ask it anyhow. So I understand community cloud. It allowed collaboration both inside and external to your organization. But then you combine community cloud with commerce cloud. Can you give us a little bit of the backstory to how that happened?
1: Yeah, that's a crazy story. So at Salesforce, I think many companies do this. It's really a best practice. We would run customer advisory board meetings, the caps. So you get fifteen of your top customers in a room, and you spend a day, and you go through your product roadmap and your vision, and they tell you what's good and bad, what they need, and use those signals to help tune your product. And you also establish great relationships with executives and companies. In 2014, we were hosting a cab in Paris. We have a beautiful office in Paris. If you ever get a chance to go to Salesforce office, it really sits almost underneath the Eiffel Tower. It's just phenomenal. And I always make customers demo how they're using our products back to me because I want to see. And a company came forward and they were a bottling company. They're the third largest bottling company in the world. And they demoed Community Cloud and said, hey, we embedded a commerce engine in it. So Community Cloud was the user experience and portal. CRM had the obviously the customer data and the critical order data. But then they put the commerce engine. And what you would do is you would go and configure like a wine bottle or a champagne bottle, like the type of label, the size, the shape. And once you did it, you dropped it in a cart and you would order, you know, what, 10,000 units. And that was a B2B commerce use case. And it was a total automation. And it was really changing the way they were doing business. You know, the light bulbs just went off. and like, we're going to do this. We are going to build and extend community cloud for commerce. So that was in 2014. It was pretty phenomenal. We went back to San Francisco, started dialing for dollars and you know, looking, doing what we call spikes and investigations. And in 2015 at Dreamforce, we launched Community Cloud Plus Commerce on stage with two companies. One was called Demandware, and the other one was called Cloud Craze. Cloud Craze was based in Chicago, Demandware based in Boston. And 2016, four or five months later, we bought Demandware, which, you know, at the time was a public company. I think it was the largest acquisition we had done at that point and formed Commerce Cloud for B2C Commerce. And I invested alongside that. We invested in Cloud Craze to accelerate their product. 2018, we bought Cloud Craze and then we put it all together Community Cloud, Commerce Cloud, B2C, and B2B under one umbrella. And the technologies now are intermixed between the two. And it's why we can do things like, you know, workflow automation or go between B2B commerce and B2C commerce.
0: Mike, it's like history reinvents itself. I still remember when you and I first met in late 96, 97, you were brought in to try to have an integrated platform for B2B and B2C commerce on both the buy side and sell side. And here in
1: 2014 and 2015, you're doing it again. I know. And, you know, it just keeps coming around and I'm sure we'll do it again with all the new concepts like headless commerce and how we're blending the new sets of commerce technologies. Commerce is a fascinating space. COVID has completely transformed commerce in the last, not even 12 months now. I think basically digital commerce has grown more in the last year than it would have normally in the last 10. It's absolutely exploded. It's like Black Friday every day for a while.
0: And did you see that pretty equally between the B2C side of commerce and the B2B side, or did one seem to transform quicker?
1: Ray, it was batshit crazy when COVID hit. You know, we're all locked away in our respective rooms. I think it was in my daughter's playroom, and we could literally watch the metrics going nuts, country as country, as they locked down because we were doing everything from running digital stores to grocery stores and you just saw the volume spike, country after country after country, brand after brand after brand. And it would dip and swoon and you'd have some companies, maybe their products weren't as relevant, maybe dip, but then others, particularly essential goods, leisure wear, things like that going nuts. Then what happened was on the B2B side, Companies that used to sell through channels where their channel was locked down, like I was thinking of this plumbing company where people couldn't buy parts because you couldn't get into the hardware store. They frantically started calling us up saying, hey, can you get us online? Really take B2B kind of a and let consumers go direct. So suddenly we saw a collapse of the models where it traditionally would have been B2B where they're like, we don't care. We just need somebody to be able to buy stuff. It's like we're in the middle of probably the biggest transformation from companies switching to digital that we'll ever see.
0: Wow. Well, you said something that was music to my ears, and that was the word metrics. And since we're on the metrics that measure out podcast in the commerce community cloud, can you tell our listening audience what some of the performance metrics or KPIs that you measured are? And I'm going to ask you to kind of split it in two ways. Of course, we have all the subscription metrics, but since you're driving so much commerce on your platform, did you also track things like GMV, the gross merchandise value or DAUs and MAUs?
1: Yeah. If anybody knows anything about Salesforce, we're essentially a very metrics-driven company. Obsessive about it. And we review it constantly. So I separate the metrics into usage metrics and then operational metrics. The usage metrics on commerce, you track GMV. That's like your top level metric. We calculated it slightly different than say Shopify. Shopify calculates it after tax. We calculated pre-tax. So Commerce Cloud this year, probably a little over 50 billion in GMV globally. But underneath, I tracked order volume. I definitely tracked the active users on the different page views. So I wanted a sense for what was the volume of commerce going through by industry, by geo, then I wanted a sense for what's the usage rate impact. Like, is average order value going up or down? The trend we were seeing is average order value was going down, but the number of orders was increasing, which would make sense. It's easier to buy. I'm buying on mobile phone, so I'm going to buy more things at less value but I'm going to increase the number of orders. And Community Cloud was very similar. We definitely tracked number of users, but we heavily tracked the usage of the system. Mostly we tracked Mal and Dow is how we measured it. And then just like any other business, you track your ACV, your AOV, and your attrition just daily, practically. So that's okay. how we did it.
0: Let me double click into the usage-based metrics. Yeah. So it's great that order value is going up or the number of orders. It means the dogs are eating the dog food even more. How did you use that insight into making strategic decisions, whether it was investment decisions or pricing decisions? How did they impact business decision-making?
1: Well, that's interesting kind of point. The numbers really did a couple of things. First, just think about scale. Scale and performance, right? So if you're starting to see a surge in orders because more and more people now, like let's say 60, 55%, 60% buying on phones, you need to make sure that you can handle the ingest that amount of orders at peak. So it's very important that you're planning 12, 16, 18 months out on peak load, order ingestion page views, so forth. Particularly what's also happened in COVID is selling models have changed where it's not just I put a catalog up, I might be running a hype sale or some sort of special sale that's going to bite the system. So you have to really understand The peaks and values. The second one, though, is using these numbers to understand buying trends by industry and by region. And that's another big signal into the product team of should we be developing new relationships? Do we need to develop capacity in a different region? Do we need to add X number of features? And some of those features are everything from tax to partnerships and 3PL and so forth. So these numbers help you understand the trend and shape of the business. And where you have to put engineering and business resources. So I think without having good metrics and flexing that muscle from day one, Ray, I don't think you could build a SaaS business. And I, I know you do it. I advise a lot of smaller companies. That's the first thing I ask for is, let me see your numbers. How are you measuring this business?
0: Yeah. In fact, Mike, a lot of younger kind of early stage companies starting at under a million, they're like, why do I need to have metrics, right? I'm getting product market fit. And my response says, well, you need to understand at least, number one, what are the metrics you're going to want to use to make decisions, how to instrument those, how to calculate the right metrics, and be thinking like, if I'm going to go out and raise Series A, whether that's in nine months or 12 months, or I'm Series A already, I'm going to raise Series B in 12 to 18 months, think like you're already a Series B company and have the performance metrics that the investors are going to say, well, these guys have their act
1: together. Yeah, you nailed it. Just put yourself in your first board meeting, you know, series A after raising $5 million. All right, you're a commerce company. GMV is going to grow by 45%, 50% this year. ACV is this, my pipeline's this, my daily usage is this, my order ingestion is that, and we've increased AOV on the cart by this. If you can roll those off and measure them, I think you got a good story. If you're like fumbling around the night before trying to figure them out, you're screwed.
0: Exactly. Kind of figuring out, oh my God, I got to import it from my financial system, from my product system. I got to put it in Excel. I don't know how to do the calculation. I've seen a lot of those presentations.
1: And you know what? Those are hard to collect, by the way. If you don't build the infrastructure and the rigor and cadence, it becomes very difficult later on because you're going to learn like, oh, we didn't calculate GMV properly. Maybe you didn't use constant currency. So there's a lot of learning and building that muscle. You got to start from day one.
0: And by the way, I'll talk for those founders, CEOs. Often we hear, oh, we got to 5 million or 10 million in the board said, well, maybe we should bring in a CEO with more experience of scaling. And part of that decision is the way that you speak and think about your business. If you think like mature operating executive, or even an investment executive, and you make decisions based upon the numbers, that discussion about upscaling to a new CEO who has an experience is going to be much
1: less. Would you agree? Absolutely. If you know your business cold, which I'm sure every startup does, but you back it with hard data, it's going to be pretty hard to have the conversation. We should bring in a different executive because nobody's going to know the business better than you, but you got to be able to measure it. If you write it down and you measure it, then you can improve it. If you don't do it, you open yourself up for a change.
0: Yeah, in fact, I think Edward Deming kind of said, you can't manage what you don't measure. And I'm going to ask another question about measurements because there's a lot of discussion in the SaaS industry today whether a subscription pricing model is better Or is a usage in variable pricing model? And a lot of companies do a hybrid. Mike, with all the information you had on orders and GMV, did that kind of factor into strategic pricing decisions?
1: Yeah, Ray. There's two things that are the most difficult that you can do at any company. One is branding or naming, and two is pricing. Those are like the two hardest things you can do inside of any company. Here's what I find. You're going to have to understand your customers, but the problem with usage-based pricing is many companies are uncomfortable because they don't have predictability. So you have to put the guardrails around the usage-based pricing. It gives them predictability so that the CFO knows, okay, X product's going to cost me $100,000 max so they can budget. Because they'll immediately ask if your base usage, like, well, what if we have this giant surge? What happens? Like, am I suddenly on the hook for $10 million? I'm like, well, no, there's a circuit but you know, all the things. So that's always the challenge on usage-based pricing is the bearability and the predictability for the CFO. And so you have to, if you're going down that, it feels good when you're pitching. It's like, hey, you only pay for what you use like hold it. If it's a CRM product and, you know, it's internally facing, it's pretty easy to get predictability. It's spicy, blah, blah, blah. Man, if you're doing like a commerce product or consumer facing product where you could have massive surges, that's a different story.
0: Yeah. But a lot of companies are making that strategic trade-off where subscription gives me better predictability and forecast management, but usage basis. And we think of the Twilio's and Shopify's of the world, yeah. it can be a much higher growth rate. Did you guys talk about which way you were gonna go within Salesforce?
1: Yeah, we blended. So Commerce Cloud is a mix. It's based off of a percentage of GMV. And so, you know you spend a lot of time back and forth with them on the percentage of GMV. And Community Cloud was similar. We had a modified usage-based pricing and we actually let them do both. If the use case was more internally focused, it could be a per seat subscription model. If it was more consumer focused, it was usually a usage based model. And you know you have tiers and so forth. And customers like that flexibility. So a lot of it, like I said, depended on that use case. And so we developed two models. and then we kind of guided the customers based off of experience and whatnot. And this is something that you probably revisit every year and you tune and you carefully craft. Shopify's pricing is pretty simple until you get to Shopify Plus where you get that percentage revenue. It's not percentage of revenue until you get into the next tier.
0: I can add one last question about usage-based pricing. How do you as the general manager, CEO of a group that has usage-based pricing have predictable forecasts when it's based upon your customer activity?
1: Well, we obviously have a lot of history that we know. So this is another thing with commerce. Less on community cloud, but commerce We had a team that was a customer success team, and we spent a lot of time with our customers instilling best practices. I can't help if their product doesn't sell, but I can give them the absolute best practices to make sure that they're growing their GMB based off of what we've learned from all of the brands. Some of that is how to use AI. To more effectively impact purchase decisions. Some of it could be landing pages, search optimization. There's a whole slew of components to it because it's definitely a shared risk and reward. You really need to be front and center with that customer and make sure they are getting the most. We spent a lot of time on features, thinking about how features would help grow GMV. And back to that customer advisory meeting, when you do a feature, you're like, why am I doing this feature? Maybe it's just a simple one product recommendation. Like, well, we want to embed that product recommendation omni channel and email. We think that that will increase click through and AOV by X, which will also increase GMV. And we don't charge for that feature because we're based off of GMV. So we are now focused on adoption of the feature because we know it's going to lift GMV.
0: I love that linkage that you just highlighted though, Mike. If you're thinking about what's good for the customer and what's going to accelerate their own revenue performance, they're not going to mind paying you more because you actually help them get there versus you think about your pricing model and your revenue and then how the customer is going to fund it.
1: Yeah, I do quarterly QBRs. I would do QBRs with strategic customers. It's one of the first things we look at is, did GMB grow? And what drove that growth? And we spent a lot of time on it. And I get a lot of feedback on, you know, simple example, abandoned cart. Like if you did X on abandoned cart, we think we can increase Y or performance tune on checkout. So yeah, that's the thing about usage-based pricing. It's not, hey, here's my product. Good luck. You are have to be all over it because they have to get the most out of that product. Otherwise, you are going to have this variability on your forecast.
0: Like I'm going to ask you a question. I've never asked a guest before. Was there a metric that you were told you had to produce and provide that you kind of said, what's the value of this metric? Why do we need it? Was there anything that jumps
1: out at you? Well, again, back to Salesforce. Salesforce, there is one metric above all. It's called ACV, annual contract value, right? So you measure annual contract value. The trick on Commerce Cloud as an acquired business being sold under GMV, percent of GMV, it was tricky to show the growth in the business under ACV compared to GMV, because you're measuring your business off of the increase in GMV. ACV was really a metric of net new customer addition. So now you have the traditional Salesforce business is around ACV growth. The traditional Commerce Cloud business was more about GMV growth, and you were acquiring mostly new brands. So your ACV growth always lagged your GMV. So that was very different business than traditional Salesforce. So mm-hmm. ACV, super important, but it, we had a lot of education internally by not just learning myself, but the whole kind of company about impact to GMV and what that meant.
0: Boy, but I bet that meant, and I'm not sure if you measured this or responsible, your net dollar retention rate had to be better than the other business units.
1: Yes. Commerce Cloud had the best customer retention of any cloud. Once you get a commerce engine in, they don't get swapped too often.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. If you look at some of the public comps out there on net dollar retention, which measures the actual revenue from a client that was renewed this year versus their previous year. And the Twilio's and even Snowflake, they have like 140 to 150% net dollar retention. That means the same exact customer cohort is growing 40 to 50% more than last year. Where a more traditional subscription SaaS company where you're based upon number of users or seats, that net dollar retention is only 103 to 105%. So I'm sure your NDR yeah. numbers were off the chart.
1: They were high. There's also what I call portfolio effect. So commerce was mostly a net new logo business versus go into existing customer. So you land commerce and then service cloud would follow, maybe you know, maybe the platform or you know mule is a pretty common. So you would get a halo around that. And that was the whole design of these businesses is B2B Commerce. There's probably a billion dollars worth of addressable market within the Salesforce ecosystem. And that's not even having to acquire new logos, right? So that's the classic example of adjacency on the product line and why you want to build a portfolio. So when you are a startup company, once you get kind of your first product into the market and you're starting to get a good run rate, and repeatability, you need to think about that adjacent product because you can take the adjacent product sell back to your existing customer base. And then you get that, what you were just describing as Trilio and or Snowflake where you have a portfolio And rather than having to craft and always bring that new brand in, you can go and sell back to your install base and grow that overall share wallet.
0: I tell you, Mike, I could talk to you all day long, but we're limited by time here on the show. So we're going to transition to taking it home and wrapping up with a couple of insights from you that are more personal in nature. The first is, is there a CEO or company that you think is a must follow in 2021 for entrepreneurs and early stage SaaS founders?
1: Well, I'm very focused on digital commerce. You know, been commerce since day one. So, I would encourage everybody just you should follow Shopify. Follow Toby Luke. Probably more important, though, is follow his COO, a guy named Harley. Listen to him on CNBC, listen to his Twitter posts, and just look at how they are unconventionally driving their business and they're just maniacal focused on their customer success. So I highly, think Shopify is setting a real beacon and just been an absolute runaway success.
0: So you think their stock still has room to run?
1: I said earlier, the growth in digital commerce, if you just take a step back, the whole world's digitizing. If you have a product today that you're not selling online, it's probably because it's an awkward product or it's just not well suited. Eventually, you're going to figure it out. The whole world is moving to selling things online. It's going to be insurance. To all the way through to healthcare. You go to a doctor and you're going to be putting your prescription in the shopping cart before you walk out. That's not traditional what you think about Shopify, but we are on just a major digital revolution here.
0: And one of the positives of what we experienced with this pandemic is the acceleration of that digital transformation, which goes into, as an operator, what tool would you recommend that every SaaS company should use?
1: Well, I'm a product guy, Ray. I think you and I, you know, way back when. So this is tough. I mean, every company should have a CRM system by default. I don't care which one you use, but if you don't have a central customer data profile, I'm advising a number of companies right now, and this is behind the scenes, like you just need a CDP based off of your CRM. But I think if you're a product guy, if you don't know how to use Envision or Figma or some sort of like mock-up tool, better start sharpening your pencil right away.
0: Really? So you think being able to do quick visual prototyping and mock-ups is critical to the development team being more
1: productive? I interview for it. If I interview a product manager, I make them do a design for me.
0: Exactly. And can you just say the names of a couple of the tools that you think people should know about?
1: I like Envision and I like a new product that I just started playing with called Figma. But I mean, if you're a rock star in Google Sheets or Google Presentations or PowerPoint, I don't care. But if you can't illustrate, I think you should flex into these newer tools because they're very collaborative. You know, Envision and Figma are, I think, two of the better ones out there.
0: Well, that is a nice segue to my final question is, I remember when I met you, you really wanted to get into product management. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was one of your first forays. But if you we're talking to a recent college grad or someone who's got one or two years of experience and they really want to be successful in the cloud and become the next Mike Micucci, what's your advice?
1: Oddly enough, I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago with a recent college grad who wanted to get into product management. And there's two things I think that you need, because this is not just a skill you go to school for. First is, do you have a passion for a particular area? I don't care if it's healthcare, sports or whatnot, you need to be an expert in that area of how the business runs and how it operates. And if you're not an expert, go find that customer and learn their business, because you're essentially designing a product for that customer. And if you're not, you're going to turn out, if you're designing a house, you put the door on the wrong side because you didn't understand how the customer flow was. So the first one is, yeah, I want to be a product manager for you know, financial software. You should be dead cold in all the products out there and understand how they work, understand the lingo and so forth. The second is then the way you're going to get into these companies is sometimes you're either going to be writing about it, you're going to be participating in webinars. And I've encouraged people to do, I haven't seen them as many lately, but hackathons. Like do a hackathon, find a couple friends who know how to code and build a product for that area that you have the passion on. You're going to learn by default if you do it.
0: You know, Mike, two things to that. It's interesting. The first point was kind of be a student of the industry or the role you want to go into. And that's exactly the same advice, the Byron Dieter from Bessemer Ventures, who's had more SaaS IPO companies than any other gave. So it's amazing the commonality. And number two, the second thing you said is, don't just learn about the concepts, be able to apply the concepts and be able to do it. Learn how to do visual design, even at least at a basic level, even if you're not going to be a developer, learn how to code so you know what's possible, right?
1: Yeah, there's a great product out there, former Salesforce guy created it called Airtable it's pretty easy to use. You can build a simple app on it. And I tell you, flexing that muscle, learning it. If I'm hiring and a product manager showed me a demo of what they built, even if it was a visual design that goes way up on me versus, yeah, I want to be a product manager.
0: Mike, that's really great advice. Don't just be able to talk the game, be able to walk the walk. So that's a wrap to today's episode. Mike, I really appreciate you being here.
1: Yeah, right. A lot of fun. Great to connect and awesome podcast. Super fun. Thanks for inviting me.
0: And to our listeners, if you are enjoying our guests and the topics that we're discussing on the metrics that measure up, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app and take a moment and provide us a rating in your comments. Your input is what's going to make our podcast, our guests, and our content even better and more relevant for you. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.